This is Brother Michael A. Smith, a voice for Freemasonry, bringing to you the Short Talk Bulletin, published by the Masonic Service Association of North America every month since 1923. This, the Short Talk Bulletin podcast, is produced in cooperation with the MSA and is made possible with the generous support of a grant from the Grand Lodge AFNAM of Minnesota. Volume 15, Number 8, from August of 1937. Signs, written by Brother Carl H. Claudie. While Freemasonry has her own signs, gestures with meaning are by no means confined to the ancient craft. Indeed, the sign is probably the most ancient method of communication and is still the most important between those who have no common tongue. Certain signs are universal to all mankind, so that, to a limited extent at least, an Eskimo may talk with a Fiji Islander and be understood. To extend the hand and point with the forefinger shows direction. The outstretched open hand, weaponless, is universally a sign of friendship, as are both hands outstretched, which is also a sign of welcome. The right hand on the heart is universally a sign of fidelity. To bow the head, to kneel, to put head in the dust is to acknowledge the presence of superior power, human or divine, according to circumstance. The Indians of North America developed the sign language to such an extent that members of one tribe could and can converse freely with those of another. Few white men have really been expert sign talkers, but some have mastered the art. The Indian signs are conventional, but, like all signs, had their roots in imitation, as two fingers astride of a third for man on horse. Masonic signs, as will be readily understood by all members of the craft, also have their origins in imitation, although the final result, as may be seen in any lodge, is a conventionalizing of the original gesture. Too much is often made of the discovery of Masonic signs in strange places, or of great age, as an indication that there or then Masonry existed. For while Masonic signs have their peculiar meaning for Masons, the same signs, or some of them, have been used in many places and by many peoples of different ages to express something quite different. Thus, there is extant a statue confidently dated as of at least 12,000 years ago. The image is in the position of one giving a very good imitation of the Fellowcraft sign. The same sign may be found in some ancient Egyptian sculptures. But that Freemasonry existed in Egypt in the time of the pharaohs, or in Yucatan at the time of the Mayas, is no more proved by these exhibits than is the communism of an auctioneer proved because he uses a red flag. Mackey makes his first landmark the modes of recognition, the signs of masonry. Whether or not the signs are actually a landmark, or merely one by usage of those grand lodges who have adopted Mackey's classification, is not a settled matter. Mackey's own definition of a landmark is that it must have existed in masonry from time immemorial, and must be unrepealable and unchangeable. If it has not so existed, 
if it can be changed without destroying Freemasonry, it is not a landmark. Inasmuch as some Masonic signs have a distinct relationship to the Great Light, and to the sublime degree, and as neither of these can be successfully traced back in Masonry nearly as far as Freemasonry itself may be discovered, it may be doubted whether the modes of recognition really partake of the nature of a landmark in fact. But the point here is not whether Mackey was correct in giving the signs the prominence of being the first landmark, but that the great jurist, historian, and Masonic scholar found in the signs of Masonry a matter of such great importance that he put them before all others in his list. Secret societies, a misnomer since the majority of such organizations are societies with secrets rather than organizations in which the membership is secret, have existed since the memory of man runneth not to the contrary. They're found in all lands in all ages. The Men's House, Dr. Joseph Fort Newton, wrote a book on masonry under that title, has always been an important part of tribal life, whether in darkest Africa or northern Canada. Invariably, the human male has developed a place, an organization, a right, a society, in which membership is held symbolic of manhood, from which women and children, and males not yet ready to be accepted as full members of the tribe, are excluded. These organizations have always had their signs, by which not only may one member know another, but by which the member of the men's house of one tribe may know whether or not the member of another tribe is an initiate into the rights of manhood. Not infrequently, initiation into such savage secret societies is physically fearful. Tortures, mutilation, have ever been considered tests of savage manhood. What more natural than that secret signs of recognition for such societies should grow out of the initiatory practices? And inasmuch as the roots of Freemasonry go back into an unknown antiquity, and the gentle craft has gathered its arcana from all lands, ages, climes, peoples, religions, and philosophies, it may well be that the signs of Freemasonry, having an intimate relation with the gentle ceremonies of becoming a Mason, may have so grown, just as the savage signs grew from the torments and cruelties of their rites. From time to time, the Masonic press has carried stories of Indian Freemasonry, apparently credible tales of white men who have been saved from captivity or death by giving a Masonic sign, instances of travelers having recognized Masonic signs made by Indians who could not possibly have been initiated into a regular lodge. Of the credibility of these tales, this bulletin is not concerned. What seems obvious is that many Masonic signs have different and other meanings among certain tribes of Indians. Just how easy it is to misinterpret a sign is well illustrated by a story told by Garrick Mallory in the first annual report of the Bureau of Ethnology. Quote, King James I of England, desiring to play a trick upon the Spanish ambassador, a man of great erudition, but who had a crochet in his head upon sign language, informed him that there was a distinguished professor of that science in the university at Aberdeen. The ambassador set out for that place, 
preceded by a letter from the king with instructions to make the best of him. There was in the town one Giordi, a butcher, blind in one eye, a fellow of much wit and drollery. Giordi is told to play the part of a professor, with the warning not to speak a word. He's gowned, wigged, and placed in a chair of state when the ambassador is shown in and they are left alone together. Presently, the nobleman came out greatly pleased with the experiment, claiming that his theory was demonstrated. He said, When I entered the room, I raised one finger to signify there is one God. He replied by raising two fingers to signify that this being rules over two worlds, the material and the spiritual. Then I raised three fingers to say there are three persons in the Godhead. He then closed his fingers, evidently to say these three are one. After this explanation on the part of the nobleman, the professors sent for the butcher and asked him what took place in the recitation room. He appeared very angry and said, When the crazy man entered the room where I was, he raised one finger, as much as to say I had but one eye, and I raised two fingers to signify that I could see out of my one eye as well as he could see out of both of his. When he raised three fingers, as much to say there were but three eyes between us, I doubled up my fist, and if he had not gone out of the room in a hurry, I would have knocked him down. End of quote. No one can say with certainty how old the use of signs by Masons may be. In the Natural History of Wiltshire, 1686, John Aubrey wrote that Freemasons were known to one another by certain signs and watchwords. Dr. Plot, writing at the same time, thought so much of the power of the Masonic signs that he said that when used, he who saw the sign would have to answer instantly from what company or place soever he was in, nay, though from the top of the steeple. Krauss traced Masonic signs to the Masonic orders of the Middle Ages. Classical history of the ancients is filled with allusions to the signs used in the ancient mysteries. If Masonry's signs came from monasticism, the monks got the idea from pagan religions, even as these in turn derived them from savage peoples. The author of Metamorphosis says, If anyone happens to be present who has been initiated into the same rites as myself, if he will give me the sign, he shall then be at liberty to hear what it is that I keep with so much care. Plautus, in one of his plays, makes a character say, Give me the sign if you're one of these votaries. The pantomime of the Romans was a well-developed art. It is related of Cicero that he frequently competed with the actor Rosius as to which could best express a sentiment. Cicero with oratory, Rosius with a gesture. The Essenes and the Gnostics had signs of recognition, and so on, almost without end. While Masons distinguish between the Dugards and the signs, the one is as much a sign as the other and have illusions all Masons understand. There is less Masonic reason for the form of the sign of distress and for the signs used in giving the grand honors, 
which differ widely in the several grand jurisdictions. Any who are curious as to the origin of the sign of distress may easily gain an insight by reflection. It may not in print be more than alluded to, but anyone can reflect on the universal meaning of its beginning. As modes of recognition, the signs today are little used. Few examinations of visitors would be considered adequate which asked and received only signs. We have learned to be more careful and to demand a knowledge of ritual and ceremony as well as a cognizance of gesture. Yet, the modes of recognition have their value even today, since there are jurisdictions, especially abroad, in which much of question and answer, ritual and order of ceremony is, to American ears, inverted and changed. The signs, however, are almost wholly universal, and if not sufficient for recognition by themselves alone, are highly satisfactory corroborative evidence. Here is a tale of Masonic signs told by Charles F. Irwin, to whose scholarly preservation of Masonic notes and happenings in the AEF in France, Freemasons owe a debt which will grow with the years. Quote, Turning the pages of my Masonic diary, I came upon the following. It was my habit several evenings each week to visit the club, help in the French lodge, Tradunion in Saint-Nazaire. Thus, I became intimately acquainted with many French brethren. One evening, they instructed me in a sign of recognition used throughout their country, whereby one Mason might know another. As you know, our French brethren never display any emblems, and thus their mode of ascertaining the presence of one of the craft on train, or in a café, or upon the crowded street, is by means of this sign. Naturally, this information fired me with zeal to experiment. It is one of our American characteristics. There was a prominent merchant in the city, unknown to me except by sight. I had reason to surmise he was a Freemason. Walking up the avenue one afternoon, I spied the merchant approaching. Furtively, I gave him the sign. But alas, he passed on and apparently did not see me or the sign. But in a moment or two, I felt a touch on my arm. Turning, I found myself looking into the face of the merchant. Smiling, he invited me to accompany him down the avenue, and soon I was in the midst of a most delightful group. He introduced me to several other businessmen, and when we parted, it was with the understanding that I visit each of them in their own homes. Most of the friendships formed which admitted me into the homes of the French came through these fraternal ties. End of quote. Altogether, the matter of signs is one of great antiquarian interest, and the very fact that Freemasonry as we know it has always used signs as an important part of ritual and ceremony is highly suggestive of signs among those older operative Masons from whom we came, and whose practices we can know only by analogy and reason. That our signs are so old, so universal, so hallowed with the use of centuries, is but one more stone in the wall which encloses all Freemasons in one vast house of fraternity.
This is Brother Michael A. Smith, a voice for Freemasonry. And this has been the Short Talk Bulletin Podcast, produced in cooperation with the Masonic Service Association of North America for the purpose of providing a common stock of vetted Masonic information to all of the constituent lodges of all of the member jurisdictions and is made possible through a generous grant from the Grand Lodge AFNAM of Minnesota, who have been engaging and inspiring good men who believe in a supreme being to live according to the Masonic tenets of brotherly love, relief, and truth since 1853.